March the 2nd this morning, and our, t- our lesson for the morning is Raising Intelligent Children, and the text is in the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 20 through 22. And in those uh, passages of Scripture, in that passage of Scripture, the Bible says, My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, do not let them depart from your eyes, keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So Lord, we ask you this morning that you would give us the words to say, and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear the message for this morning. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, a few weeks ago, I received a call from Bishop Maxwell, who serves both as the pastor of the Elysia Temple Church and the director of the Mayor's Faith-Based Initiative Department. Brother Maxwell, after researching various problems for which he could initiate a program involving the churches, decided to tackle the problem of early childhood development. His thesis to me was that the evidence shows that children in the African-American community in general are disadvantaged by their upbringing during their infant and toddler years to the point that they enter the educational system so far behind children in the majority community that they virtually have no chance to catch up. He was hoping that I would work with his organization to help educate people in the community as to the depth of the problem and some possible solutions, and I agreed to preach some sermons on the topic. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, endeavors to instruct his son in the proper way to live. Instructing our children, both verbally and by example, as to specifically how they should live is, in my opinion, the most important thing that we can do to ensure that they appropriately handle their academic goals and life pursuits. I get this opinion from this passage of Scripture, in which how Solomon tells his son in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 through 27, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my saying. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet, and let all your ways be established. 
Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. So Solomon's guidance boils down to these three things. Guard your heart. Do not speak deceitfully or perversely. And consider your actions before you take them so that you will avoid evil. This guidance corresponds with the tone of the general tone of the guidance of the scriptures. Now, many people look at the scripture with an eye toward remediation, trying to figure out what the Bible says about how they can get out of the mess that they are in. But the real purpose of the scriptures is not to get you out of trouble, but is in fact prophylactic, meaning that God's following God's word is intended to keep you out of trouble in the first place rather than get you out of trouble. There's a wise proverb that says that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Now, God set this tone in his second utterance to man in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now in this passage of scripture, God told man that he could stay alive and out of trouble by obeying the instruction to not eat from a particular tree. God also told man that if he disobeyed, death would be the result. But notice that God purposely did not tell man how to atone for his sin and avoid death if he disobeyed, because God intended and still intends that the consequences of disobedience be avoided rather than remediated. Solomon's guidance echoes that of God in the admonition to not turn to the right or to the left, but to ponder the path of your feet. We need to make plan for plans for our lives based upon the word of God rather than just do what moves us at the moment. Now, our society generally has more of a view toward remediation rather than prophylaxis. Most of the social programs emphasize fixing the problems of society much more than preventing them in the first place. Of course, this is only normal. Neither God nor man created garments to hide man's nakedness until after he sinned. And while the man lived in the garden in the will of God, clothes were not necessary. And all the social programs that we have are like the clothes that they made in the garden. They endeavor to conceal the nakedness of our sin so that we do not have to be fearful and ashamed. If we consider the situation, however, we find that our remedial solutions do not generally solve problems. The real method required to solve the social problem of the gap in the efficacy of childhood development between black children and children of other cultures is not remedial, but prophylactic. The problem cannot easily be fixed, but it can be much more easily be avoided in the first place by understanding and complying with the word of God. Listen to Solomon as he instructs his son in the way to avoid trouble of this type in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1 through 14. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion 
and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable. You do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the cruel one. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And you mourn at last when your flesh and body are consumed, and say, How I have hated instruction and my heart despised correction. I've not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly of the congregation. So Solomon, in this passage of scripture, squarely places the responsibility on his son to avoid immoral women. By this, Solomon means women partaking in adultery and fornication. Hebrews 13 and 4 tells us, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So the point that I am making is that if people would avoid sexual activity until they are married, most of the social, developmental, and educational problems of out-of-wedlock children would go away, and the achievement gap between our community and others in the country would decrease. The most important thing that we can do to improve the early childhood development of our children is to postpone having children until after we are married and in an emotional and financial position to give them the care and attention that they need. Now Hebrews 13 and 4 is one of the most counterintuitive passages of scripture that I could quote when viewed in the light of the current culture in which our children are raised. I recently looked at the website of Seventeen Magazine, which is a trendy and popular magazine for teenagers. Under the heading of questions about health, sex, and fitness, 15-year-old Crystal asked, I've heard that if you are overweight, you have less of a risk of getting pregnant. Is that just a myth? Now, medical questions on the website are answered uh, by the doctors and nurses at teenhealth.com, a site owned by the DuPont Nemours Corporation, owners of the largest network of children's hospitals in the country. Their answer to this 15-year-old young lady was as follows. The truth is that anyone having unprotected sex can get pregnant, no matter what shape or size they are. However, when overweight girls do get pregnant, they sometimes are at more of a risk of complications during pregnancy. So to reduce the risk of pregnancy and contracting sexually transmitted diseases, make sure your partner wears a condom every time you have sex. Now this answer in the culture of our current day and age seems responsible, but from a biblical perspective, the answer is absolutely unreasonable unless, of course, 
the 15-year-old girl in question is actually Mary. In our culture, in which out-of-wedlock sex is considered acceptable and abortion is both legal and acceptable, to tell a 15-year-old female child to make sure that her partner uses a condom when having sex seems logical, but when you consider the level of general responsibility that a child of this age can successfully handle, I would question whether it is actually logical or responsible for an authority figure to give tacit approval to or encourage a child to participate in sexual activity, condom or not. KidsHealth.org, a site linked to this Teen Health Org, Teen Health Org site, says this about contraception. Says, for us to consider a birth control method completely effective, no couples will become pregnant while using that method. Very effective means that less than two out of 100 couples will become pregnant while using that method. Effective means that between two and 12 out of 100 couples become pregnant while using that method. Moderately effective means 13 to 20 out of 100 couples become pregnant while using that method. Less effective means 21 to 40 out of 100 couples become pregnant while using that method. And not effective means that more than 40 out of 100 couples become pregnant while using that method. Now, according to 2007 March statistics quoted on kidshealth.org, the condom recommended to the 15-year-old girl is considered moderately effective with a failure rate of 15 pregnancies out of every 100 proper uses, which statistically is about one pregnancy for every eight uses. The statistics indicate that even if a 15-year-old girl and her partner probably having sex while attempting to avoid detention, uh, detection rather, are able to properly manipulate a condom, she will conceive seed on or before her eighth sexual experience. Nevertheless, the website that publishes these statistics, along with our society in general, recommends condoms to young people as a solution to the problem of a potential pregnancy. But condoms are not actually prophylactic, but remedial. They are a poor attempt to avoid the consequences of sin. I call them a poor attempt because statistics indicate that when using condoms properly, unwanted pregnancy, the natural consequence of sexual sin occurs one out of every eight times. This percentage is the same as the chance of dying when playing Russian roulette with a gun with an eight bullet clip. After seven successful attempts, failure is almost a certainty. Now there's a great difference between attempting to avoid the consequences of sin, as teenhealth.org advises our young people to do, and avoiding sin itself, as the Bible tells us to do. God commands us to avoid sin rather than committing sin and then trying to avoid the consequences. Of course, the current counter-argument to the Bible is that since our children are going to commit sin anyway and we cannot stop them, we might as well try to give them some protection from the consequences. That sounds like a reasonable argument as well, but in fact, it is not. 
when we try to help our children avoid the consequences of their action, we actually convince our children that the actions themselves are acceptable. I'm acquainted with a single mother that had a daughter who became pregnant in her sophomore year in high school. The mother told me that she loved babies and missed having one around, so she was going to take over raising the baby once it was born. She did so, and her daughter showed her gratitude for being rescued by her mother by producing two more babies for her mother to raise in the next four years. And I'm sure that her mother was happy to be so busy. Helping our children avoid consequences also helps them avoid learning the lessons of life. While we may think we are helping our children when we get them off the hook, we are most probably not, as our children are probably either too immature to appreciate that which we are doing for them, or they may take our help for granted. When our children have to work themselves out of trouble, however, the learned lessons are much more permanent. You may remember that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God did not shield them from their consequences, but simply provided them with more appropriate clothes before he kicked them out of the garden. Now let me share with you God's primary reference on the topic of out of, redlock, out of wedlock sex between unmarried people. Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29 says, if a man finds a young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed and he seizes her and lies with her and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted, be permitted to divorce her all his days. So to God, the remediation for out of wedlock sex is the same as his original intention for all people who are having sex, which is marriage without the possibility of divorce. This properly makes the young man responsible for the young woman that he impregnates through fornication and gives the child produced a two-parent family. God's thinking is that the young man will most likely marry somebody at some point anyway. So by choosing to have sex with this young lady, the young man has simply chosen his spouse. This commandment is not punitive. The young people now can morally have the sexual relations with one another that they desire to have after they marry. But they also must take responsibility for the children that they bring into the world. Now, it may be considered inconvenient for the young people that the young people must grow up more quickly than they would have had they chosen to take advantage, example, for a college opportunity. But they have volunteered by their actions for the marital assignment. God ordains that if you are grown enough to have sex, you are also grown enough to deal with the consequences of sex. But, a parent might protest, my child wants to go to college, and they can't enjoy the college experience with a spouse hanging on to them. I'm sorry, says God, but your young adult voluntarily chose to make themselves one with their mate rather than staying a footloose and fancy free single young person for four more years. Your young adult intentionally chose both their spouse and to create a family. The spouse and the child are their responsibility, and marriage 
is not a death sentence. And if your young adult had the intelligence to obtain a college scholarship, they certainly have the intelligence to figure out how to be or to take care of a wife and children. Now, realistically, I recognize that the culture as a whole does not desire to conform to the word of God, and we have no power to make the culture do so. The only power that we have is to decide for ourselves whether or not it is reasonable for us to follow the word of God as we live in the culture and whether or not we are going to do so. The Bible has the clear, simple, prophylactic solution for the social problems that we have in life, especially the one that we are trying to solve in this sermon. And to be successful, we only have to make the decision that we are going to conform to the word of God rather than making up our plan for life as we go along. Jesus throws down the gauntlet to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 20, which says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus intends that we be able to withstand the effect of negative peer pressure. We ought to have confidence in a solution with which the non-believing world cannot agree or understand. God always intended that we would have to stand against the self-centered ideas of the world and the sinful plans of the evil one. In a group counseling session, a woman spent a great deal of time beating herself up for putting her two children up for adoption as infants. She gave birth to each of the children while she was unmarried, and she knew that she did not have the ability to provide for the children that she brought into the world. She felt, however, that she was a bad person for not actually raising her own children until the counselor convict, convinced her that to do that which she did was actually heroic, as she had given her children an intact, loving, two-parent family, a mother and a father with the means and commitment to care for them emotionally as well as financially, which is more important to a child than the biological connection of the womb. Biology does not trump circumstances, and without question, a child is better served by an intact two-parent family environment than by a single mother, biology notwithstanding. Now, a woman that had actually raised the child as a single mother echoed the sentiments of the counselor in the meeting. She said, 
I was 15 years of age when I became pregnant 21 years ago. While I am proud of myself for not having had an abortion, I now realize that I still fell short. After a brief one-year marriage to my child's biological father, I ended up raising my son on my own without any financial or emotional support whatsoever from my son's father. He was an alcoholic that lived just five miles from us, but he wouldn't take part in my son's life. Although I made a very unwise choice of a father for my son, I felt proud that I was able to provide for, for my son all on my own. Well, now I know otherwise. At age 15, my son began experimenting with drugs, and I tried very hard to fix him with therapy, discipline, love, and structure. At age 17, he graduated from high school, but between 15 and 17, I endured many incidents of bad behavior from him. Finally, at age 18, he completely rebelled. He is now a full-fledged drug addict, and most recently he has been diagnosed with a mental disorder. I'm not sure if the mental disorder was brought on by the drug use or if it existed all along, but I now realize that if my son had had two parents who were settled in their lives and roles, any mental disorder that may have existed in him would probably have been discovered sooner and could have been more successfully treated. I was just a single parent that was so busy trying to make ends meet and to provide and survive by herself that I just did not take the time to give my son that which he needed. I also know in my heart that my son was always lacking the male father bonding and teaching that only comes from a good relationship with the father. There was no uncle, there was no grandfather, there was no man in his life. My son was raised by a woman and it shows in his expectations and behavior. I'm now trying my best to be supportive in this unfortunate situation and to get him the help that he needs. I'm also now very sorry that I did not have the selfless grace to give my baby to a loving couple who could have better provided for him because of the roles that they had established and the, model, the modeling that they could have given. I proved to everyone that as a teenage mom, I could still graduate from college and make a lot of money. I was not able to prove, however, that a woman can successfully raise a man-child without a man, without a father. God has not produced gender roles and the requirement for a child to have two parents providing love and discipline just to be a cosmic killjoy. God does not tell us to wait till we are married to have sex just because he likes single people to be sexually frustrated. God has a plan. And his word is the planning tool that we need to develop our lives in the way that will bring us the most satisfaction. Sex is fun, but sex is also intended by God to be part of a greater relationship than a one-night stand or a shack-up situation in which there is no commitment. The children that you will produce by your sexual activity need you to be as intelligent as birds that create a nest before they lay eggs. God ordains marriage because the raising of children requires planning, preparation, sacrifice, and most importantly, commitment. 
Once the child is conceived, it is too late for a man to have second thoughts as to whether or not she is the one. It is time for him to step up to the plate and devote himself to his child. Once the child is conceived, it is too late for a woman to realize that she hasn't done everything that she wanted to do before she became a wife and mother. It is time for her to step up to the plate and devote herself to her child. Sex makes babies. Birth control is nothing more than a trap to make you think that your sexual activity will have no consequences, although you are actually only reducing your exposure to the consequences slightly. Using birth control is like having an umbrella in a rainstorm. The umbrella is better than nothing and may keep the water out of your eyes, but it will not keep you from getting wet. It may see un seem unrealistic in this day and age to be a public proponent of sexual abstinence until marriage. However, in order to change the cycle of academic deficit for our children, it is important that we are the proponents of exactly that. We need to, as the old folks used to say, go back to the old landmark. It's time for the sake of our children to turn back the clock and return to biblical morality. It is time for us to recognize that the most important thing in the world is not our pleasure, our feelings, and what we want, but it is that innocent child that we may be producing and hurting by irresponsible sexual activity. And even if fornication does not produce a child, it produces a psychological effect on both of the people involved. When a woman has sex with a young man, she is psychologically programmed to bond with him. She feels a great deal of attachment to the young man that has been inside of her body. Interpersonal attachment is one of the characteristics of the human female. What happens to the woman when she finds out that she really doesn't mean anything to her partner for the evening, but that he just had an evening to kill and considered having sex with her as a pleasant way to pass the time, like watching a basketball game? The level of attachment generated by sexual activity is like tape that bonds us together. When you tape two things together, and then remove the tape from the items, some of the glue from the tape sticks to the item. You can reuse the tape because it will still stick, but it will not stick as well as before. Each time you put the tape on and take the tape off of something, more glue is removed from the tape and the tape becomes less and less sticky. Finally, the tape becomes useless because of the amount of glue that has been removed from it. And when a woman has, who has had several sexual relationships that have not led to a happy marriage, she is much less likely to bond, to trust, to give herself fully to any marriage, simply because of all of the times she has been removed from various relationships. She's not able to stick to the man that does marry her, and a divorce often ensure, ensues because she can't trust, she can't love, and she has reached a pitiful stage in which she pronounces in her mind that all men are dogs. No, dear, all men are not dogs. Maybe it is you that is acting like the dog. 
of course, if you live your life in the dog food can, you can expect to attract dogs. It would be much more prudent for a woman to maintain her virginity until marriage. The sexual experiences that women have with men not committed to them have the potential of an unwanted pregnancy, and if the man does not want to commit to you before you have sex with him, he certainly has no incentive to do so after the sexual experience. Since he can have you without a commitment, why should he bother to make one? So God, in Hebrews 13 and 4, says that you should bring virginity to the marriage bed so that your psychological tape will be as sticky as possible and you won't have bad sexual experiences to keep you from bonding with the man that does choose to commit to you. Sexual abstinence is in a woman's best interest. Statistics indicate that women that have cohabitated with a man, meaning that they have lived together and had sex out of wedlock, are less likely to marry him than women that have not cohabited. And if they do marry one another, they are more likely to divorce than couples that have not cohabited. The argument that you should have sex with a man before you marry him to see if he could really satisfy you is also a specious argument. Sex, like all physical activities, is learned. And you will not be able to ascertain whether a man is able to learn to please you simply by having a sexual experience. Whether or not, whether or not a man knows how to please you has no bearing on his ability to learn to please you. When I started kindergarten, I didn't know anything about computers, but now I've learned quite a bit about them. In the final analysis, sex out of wedlock is good for two things, creating unplanned pregnancies and breaking hearts. So God tells us not to do it. If we can cut back on the unplanned pregnancies, Children will be born into more secure situations with better parenting. Test scores will improve, and we will not have to lay off all of the teachers in the Lansing schools every few years. We as Christians must carry the message of morality. It is the key to the solution to the many social problems that we have, including the problem of poor academic achievement in our community. Morality and sexual abstinence outside of marriage may not be a popular message, but I'm reminded of Peter and the apostles, whom Jesus, Jesus deputized to preach after he rose from the dead. Peter, Peter preached a great sermon after he healed the man at the beautiful gate, so much so that the Jewish leaders that killed Jesus arrested Peter and forbade him to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 32 records, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this Jesus' blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, 
whom God has given to those who obey him. For those who believe in Jesus, the commandment is that we ought to obey God rather than men. Even if men have the temporary power over us, Jesus, having committed no sin, found himself hung on Calvary's cross because he healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons, cleansed lepers, preached the gospel, and made the Jews jealous. They mocked Jesus. They scorned him. They treated him shamefully. They beat him, and then they killed him. They did everything they could to Jesus to defeat his message, and at the end of all of their attempt, they found themselves faced not only with the unforgettable mem memory of the ministry of Jesus Christ, but the ineradicable reality of his resurrection from the dead because of Peter and the other apostles preaching it. Those Jewish leaders have become a footnote in history, while Jesus, Peter, and the apostles have become the best-known individuals in the history of the world. You may have to endure some scorn and ridicule in order to do the work of the Lord, but the reward of following Jesus is worth it. It's our turn now, so let us carry the message of the Master as he looks on from heaven, as Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us this lesson, and we understand the circumstances that we live in in this time in 21st century America, where morality has fallen on hard times and immorality appears to have the upper hand. But we ask you this morning, Lord, that you would help us in our homes and in our concentric circles of contact to go back to the old landmark. Help us to be proponent of, proponents of biblical morality with our children and with those children with whom we come in contact, help us to change our environments for one where, where, ones in which licentiousness is applauded to one in which morality takes the center stage and let us be implements that you can use to make that a reality. And we pray for those children who find themselves in harm's way in the academic institutions of our city and of our country. And we ask you, Lord, that you let something happen in those families from which they come that would give their parents the devotion required, required to train them in the way that they should go so that when they get old, they will not depart from it. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that in the house today. We ask that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. 
Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us another chance to come out to your house and another uh, set of topics to discuss. And we ask you, Lord, that you make our discussion profitable, that you allow uh, the word to go forth and allow, the, allow us to develop uh, solutions that would be helpful uh, to those who have the problem. And we ask you, Lord, that uh, in our families that you would insulate us from the problem, help us to decide uh, that we're going to live our lives according to the way that you have told us to do so. Uh, give us the mind to keep your commandments as Jesus told us that we love, show our love for you by keeping your commandments. Now we're praying for Dr. Allen and his family. We're thanking you for them and asking you to continue to bless in that case. We're praying for Sister Allen who's out on a, uh, a, a, a sympathy call this morning and we ask you that you bless the family of Brother Busby as they think of him. Uh, and the dedication of that structure to his name and uh, his good work over in Old Town. And we ask you, Lord, that you give comfort uh, to those whom she's trying to comfort with her presence. We pray for the children, and we ask you that you continue to bless them, uh, give their grandparents and great-grandparents that are raising them uh, the strength that they need and the wisdom that they need to deal uh, across the generations with those young people and give them... Uh, Give them a, a give them intestinal fortitude as they have to deal in their senior years with the problem of very junior individuals. But we ask you that you strengthen them. We pray for the store as well, and we ask that you continue to bless them and send them customers, and we thank you for it. Pray for my wife and those whom she's asked us to pray for, and we just ask you, Lord, that you go with uh, Mother Z and and all those on her list and stand by them and. Of course, we're praying for Paul, and we're asking, Lord, that you continue uh, to give him traveling mercies as he goes up and down the dangerous highway, that you would give him uh, the technical ability uh, to hold his own where he is in his occupation. And we ask you, Lord, that you give him the management skill that he might be able to uh, hold down the fort in the organization in which he is in charge. Uh, give him uh, the ability to do all those things that will make him successful in his chosen profession and we want to thank you for that as well and we pray for uh, Rick who's over in Iraq, I mean over in Germany and we ask you Lord that you keep him safe over there and, uh, that you make his unit one of the ones that is able to come home uh, before, the, before they have to go back and we ask you Lord that you bless the ones who are uh, involved in the prosecution of this war uh, in the leadership of it, that they might be able to find a conclusion uh, that will meet the need and meet the goals and uh, bring the troops home all at the same time. So we're asking that you help them to solve the problems in such a way that would be productive to all of us. Continuing also to pray for Eric and Amanda as they grow uh, ever closer to the date of that child. We ask that you make her gestation period healthy, uh, allow her to bring a healthy child into the world, and we ask, ask you to give them joy as they endeavor to raise that child that they brought into the world. Prayer Brother Edwards and his family, we ask you that you bless the boys this morning as, as they're out at the basketball game. And we ask you that uh, as Harris uh, runs up and down the court, that you keep him safe, allow his uh, not to get into any uh, physical injuries and then have him, have him uh, in the game uh, all in the same pieces that he brought there. And 
We're also praying for Brother Edward's friend in, uh, in Detroit, whose funeral, uh, who, whose wife's funeral he went to this week. We ask that you bless in that bereaved situation and give that young man comfort and strength, the ability to raise his children uh, without his wife. We just pray for them as well. My Lord, we're praying for Brother Lee and Sister Lee and Cedric and for those for whom they are concerned. We ask you that you uh, uh, that you give uh, Rowena, who has uh, impending surgery, that you would give her confidence, that you would uh, build, her, build her up in the inner man, that you'd allow her her thinking to be such that she's able to handle uh, this change in her condition, even in her senior days. And we just ask you, Lord, that you'd go with the doctors who have to do the surgery, that you'd make it routine and make it common. Don't give them uh, any challenges that require any heroic efforts, but that you would just uh, smooth out the road so that when they travel on it, it would be one that is easy for them to travel on. We're continuing in prayer for Brother Brace and Brother White and all that... Uh, Brother Lee and his family have asked us uh, to pray for, for, uh, for Cody and for the Grimmelot family who are over overseas in harm's way. We just ask, Lord, that you build a hedge of protection around all of our troops over there, them included, and them, them in particular, that they might be able to come back home safely at the conclusion of their job and the completion of their tour of duty, and we want to thank you for it. Lord, we're praying for the McClure family. We're asking that you continue to bless them. We're thanking you that uh, J.J. is in town this week, and we're glad to see him. And we just ask you, Lord, that you continue to bless him in his academic pursuits, and uh, we just ask you, Lord, that you go with him and stand by him. We pray for his sister as well, and ask you that you bless her as she's a long ways away, but coming to the end of that particular academic cycle. And we just ask you, Lord, that you give her the mind that uh, she'll be able to uh, learn this last set of material so that when the final test time comes, uh, that she will be able to uh, pass all the tests with flying colors and march proudly uh, at the matriculation ceremonies, and we want to thank you for that as well. Pray for Brother we Tommy Wells, who's uh, just recently had a liver transplant. We thank you that the technology is available uh, to make that a reality. And we ask you, Lord, that in his circumstance that you would uh, uh, give him the strength that's required to recover. Uh, from such a surgery. And we just ask you that you continue to go with him and stand by him in his circumstance. Uh, we, just, we just bless, Lord, the fact that they have the wherewithal uh, to do that for him, even in the place where he is. Continuing in prayer for the family of Veronica Olney as well. We ask you that you go with them and stand by him. Praying for Sister Winston, Lord, and we're asking that you continue to bless her and give her all of her limb mobility that she had, that she might be able to do all the things that she has planned in mind. And we pray for her husband who's facing a knee replacement, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, that uh, you would give him confidence in his doctors, that you would give him uh, the ability to understand uh, the technology and, and the requirement for him to have that uh, situation fixed to avoid the pain of it. Then we ask you, Lord, that you'd uh, just go with him and allow his family uh, to boost him up, to give him comfort, and uh, to prepare him for that which is uh, coming. We also pray that the doctors would be able to uh, give him the information that he needs to make him feel secure, and then we ask you that you give them a secure day upon which to do the surgery. And we just ask you that you go with him and stand by him. Give him a good outcome and allow him to regain his mobility uh, without pain, and we just want to thank you for that as well. And Lord, I'm praying for those in my family, praying for Dad as he prepares to have his second eye 
uh, operated on. We thank you for the success uh, on his one eye, and we ask you that the second eye would be like unto it, that that cataract might be removed and that he might be able to do well from it. Praying for Uncle James and Aunt Barbara. We're asking, Lord, that you bless in that situation as Aunt Barbara is afflicted with Alzheimer's disease. And we ask you, Lord, that you clear up those connections in her brain that she might be able to uh, restore herself to her, her right mind. And uh, we, just, we, just, we just ask you, Lord, that you go with them. And allow them to be bound together in this circumstance. Give them love for one another that they might be able, Lord, to, to go through this and uh, maintain their relationship. We just want to ask you, Lord, that you just be a comforter, be a doctor in the sick room. Just be a comforter to them. Praying for the rest of the family, Lord. Ask you to bless there. And also uh, praying for Brother Perkins down in uh, Louisiana, Brother Northern down in Houston, those young men who are raising those children and help them to continue to be able to raise them in the way that they should go so that when they get old, they will not depart from it. But now, Lord, we thank you for uh, that which you have given us here to make your word plain. We thank you for the word and help us to have it and understand it and be able to rightly divide it that it might benefit the hearers and that we might be able to live lives more in conformity with that which you would have us to do. And Lord, now I pray for my wife, who's the love of my life. Thank you, Lord, for the experiences that we're having together. And we ask you that you continue to bless us, go with us and stand bind us, by us, and bind us together with cords of love that cannot be broken. Well, now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. And we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen and thank God. Jesus Christ, that most loving Savior, came and taught us the way that we should live. And then once his teaching was over, he sacrificed his life that we might have a right and a just right to the tree of life. They broke his body and, he, and they shed his blood so that the penalty of our sins might be forgiven and that we might be able to leave this earthly realm and move on to be in heaven with him. Let us remember all that he did for us in his sacrifice on the cross. Let us remember him now as we eat and drink together. Well, may the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit rest within the Bible that's now henceforth and forevermore. Let every heart say, Amen.